0: Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number ninety four. I checked; I'm certain of the number. It is ninety four. It's even, therefore, don't have to see if it's prime, cause it ain't. All right, we got stuff everyone. going on.
1: Yep, we do lots of stuff as usual. Um, we're going to be talking about adulthood and aspects of adulthood and uh, ways to uh, ways to mature into adulthood. Uh, today. But first, just some some housekeeping stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, consider switching over to Odyssey. That's where the chat is enabled for those of you watching live. Uh, you can submit questions for the Q&A that will follow this uh, at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. Please consider joining our Patreons tomorrow, August 29th uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific is our private two-hour Q&A at my Patreon. We have a lot of fun with those. They're small enough that we're able to pay attention to the chat and interact with it as it happens. Uh, you can go to store.darkhorsepodcast.org uh, to buy some things, and uh, please consider joining me at Natural Selections. That's naturalselections.substack.com. My uh, my post this week was about friendship, uh, and I will continue next week uh, talking about other ways to um, for humans to make meaning in the world. We have two sponsors today, so without further ado, let's embark on those, Zach. All right. Today's sponsors are Vivo Barefoot and Omax Cryofreeze. Vivo Barefoot makes shoes for feet. That sounds unremarkable until you realize that most shoes are not made for feet. They are made for someone's idea of what feet should look like and do and be constrained by. Most shoemakers have no idea what feet are or what they should be able to do. That's not true for Vivo Barefoot. We've been wearing Vivo Barefoot for a few months now, and honestly, we love them. They are beyond comfortable. They feel like you're barefoot in your shoes. You get better tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic and it's frankly ridiculous how fantastic they are. Uh, The people at Vivo Barefoot in fact say they don't make shoes. They make footwear that allows your feet to do what they were designed to do so your body can move the way it was designed to move in our natural world. Millions of years of evolution, uh, and our feet are basically perfect bits of kit. In their language, humans have evolved to essentially walk, move, and run barefoot. But modern shoe-shaped, cushioned shoes have impacted foot f- impacted. Foot function and are contributing to a movement-focused health crisis in the process. So these Vivo Barefoot are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin soles to enable you to feel more and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. And yet they are they are containing. So you're not slopping around in these at all. It's not like flip flops, um, which uh, are not actually, as it turns out, very good for your feet. I have recently learned to my chagrin, Um, but uh, they, they really are terrific shoes. Uh, and, uh, there's some research that shows that foot strength has increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in these shoes. Um, I know that when I'm wearing them, I can easily walk for miles, uh, without realizing how far I've gone. And, um, and they've got a great range of footwear for both kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training to everyday wear, probably not your shoes for a formal occasion. Uh, but you know, who knows, maybe they'll get to those, get to those next. So. Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp pioneering regenerative business principles. Their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural, bio, and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild on it. Go to vivobarefoot.com to get an exclusive 20% offer. All new customers also get a 100% day free trial. So you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's vivo barefoot, V I V O B A R E F O O T dot com slash dark horse. We think you're going to love them.
0: You forgot the most important part.
1: Did I? Yes.
0: They're sold by the pair, checked for chirality before shipping.
1: Oh, yeah. True. Yeah, true. No, it's, that's, I mean, if that. they weren't, you wouldn't want them. And they're probably <laughs> toasted as well.
0: <laughs> they may well be toasted. All right. Next up is Omax Cryofreeze. But before we talk about Omax Cryofreeze, let's talk a little bit about pain. Pain is awesome. Pain is actually what keeps you safe. The fact is, pain is an adaptation, it is a necessary feature of your physiology that tells you that something is amiss, that you're doing some kind of damage, or that you are putting some part of you at risk. But. That said, not all pain is useful. Sometimes you have a chronic pain that isn't informing you of anything you don't know, and in those cases it's just nothing short of annoying, and it's nice to be able to do something about it. So, Omax Cryofreeze is a roll-on, smells pleasant, contains CBD, and does, I can tell you from my own situation, does seem to alleviate pain. So, for example, when we came back from our uh, recent vacation after way too much Driving, I had a pain in my shoulder. I tried a little bit of Omax CryoFreeze and the pain alleviated, which is lovely. Don't have to ingest anything. Um, So what should you do? You should go uh, to Omax Health and they have a 20% offer for our listeners, 20% off a full bottle of Omax CryoFreeze. The discount also applies to anything on their site. So, go to OMAX, O M A X health.com and enter the code DARK to get 20% off Cryofreeze site
1: wide. All right. Are we? There we go. Nope. So, for those just listening, we still got the green. There we go. Uh, when, uh, I, I assume that everyone watching has figured out that when we've got that green. Uh, perimeter around the screen, that means we are uh, reading sponsored ads. And whenever you don't see that green screen, uh, that green perimeter, uh, that means that whatever we're talking about, we're doing so because, um, not not because of any financial incentive at all. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about adulthood um, from a number of different perspectives. Uh, we're going to talk about error correction. We're going to talk about gratitude and forgiveness and uh, a little bit about um, totalitarianism. I think. Um, But we are going to begin by reading an excerpt from chapter 11, that is the adulthood chapter of our forthcoming book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. There are 13 chapters in this book, so we are coming up on the end of these excerpts, which means we're also coming up on publication date, which is just two and a half weeks away at this point, September 14th. Um, So we've got two more chapters after this week, and then, I don't know, maybe we'll read something from the epilogue or the afterward um, the week after publication. But uh, we shall see. Okay. Without further ado, we've got just three pages from the middle of the chapter called Becoming Adults. And those of you, actually, before I embark on this, those of you who are familiar with uh, my medium presence, and now I've moved basically all of my new writing over to the natural selections uh, on Substack, uh, may remember a piece that I wrote on postmodernism a couple years ago. And for... Uh, for this section of this chapter of our book, we modified that piece somewhat so that you will, you will hear some similarities if, you're familiar, if you are familiar with that piece. Types of reality. Remember Wile E. Coyote, whose life's work was chasing the roadrunner in Looney Tunes cartoons? In hot pursuit, he often found himself skidding off the edge of a cliff where he would hang, suspended in air, until he looked down. Gravity did not apply until he recognized that it should. It was funny because it was ludicrous. It was utterly ludicrous, and yet too many modern people seem to imagine that, by changing people's opinions or perspectives, you change underlying reality. In short, they believe that reality itself is a social construct. We argued earlier that con artists and the confused often operate on a wholly social plane, rather than on an analytical one. How do you avoid becoming someone who assesses the world based on social responses, rather than based on analysis? One of those people who are easily fooled by con artists and the confused. Two good strategies are to regularly engage with the physical world and to understand the value of close calls. The sad truth is that the more educated you are today, the harder this is to do. Our current higher education system is steeped in a philosophy that doubts our ability to even perceive the physical world. That philosophy is called postmodernism. Postmodernists have been at the leading edge of promoting the view that reality is socially constructed. Postmodernism and its ideological child post-structuralism were once contained in a small corner of the academy. These ideologies do contain kernels of truth. They teach us, for instance, that our sensory apparatus biases us and that we are mostly unaware of those biases. They reveal that school, factories, and prisons are similar in their use of power to control populations. That was um, an analysis done by Michel Foucault in his metaphorical extension of Bentham's Panopticon. And critical race theory has at its foundation the real observation that the American legal system has had a particularly difficult time emerging from its racist past, and, and that full recovery from that past is not yet on the horizon. These are a few real and valuable contributions that such ideologies have contributed to the world, but most modern instantiations of postmodernism have jumped the shark. Sometimes when fringe academic ideas go rogue, they persist longer than they might, but their impact is limited to a few university departments. Not so with postmodernism and its downstream effects. What what happens on campus has most definitely not stayed on campus. Postmodernism and its adherents have infiltrated systems far beyond higher ed, from the tech sector to K-12 schools to the media, and are doing considerable harm. One of the most astounding conclusions of some postmodernists is that all of reality is socially constructed. They have, taken, they have even taken issue with the conclusions of Newton and Einstein, on the basis that the privilege of these scientists is obvious in their equations, and as old white guys, their biases inherently prevented them from knowing anything real of the world. People of particular phenotypes, this ironically biologically deterministic and regressive worldview argues, can't possibly have access to truth. How do you come to be this confused, though, to believe that all reality is socially constructed? Have little experience in the real world. No carpenter or electrician could believe that all of reality is socially constructed. No forklift operator or sailor could. Nor, I would have thought, could any athlete? There are physical ramifications of physical actions, and everyone operating in the physical world knows this. If you have not thrown or caught many balls, or used hand tools, or laid tile, or driven stick shift, in short, if you have little or no experience with the effects of your actions in the physical world, and therefore have not had occasion to see the reactions they produce, then you will be more prone to believing in a wholly subjective universe in which every opinion is equally valid. Every opinion is not equally valid, and some outcomes don't change just because you want them to. Social outcomes may change if you argue or throw a fit. Physical outcomes will not. Everyone, no matter how trapped they are in their body with its particular flaws and strengths, has the opportunity to experience the world of actions and reactions in the physical world. Not everyone can bike single track, but for those of us who can and do, we face objective reality in the form of roots, hills, and gravity. How, given your particular body, might you force your mind and body into confrontation with physical reality? Consider this. Our eyes do not produce a static image, like a photograph. Rather, our eyes are tools of our brains taking note of the world. We are fully embodied. Our bodies are not afterthoughts to our brains or unnecessary to their interpretation of the world. Those eyes and those skulls on those necks, atop those torsos and legs and feet that move, it is all part of perception. Perception is an action. The more you move, therefore, within whatever your particular limits are, the more integrated, whole, and accurate your perception of the world is likely to be. Movement increases wisdom. So too does exposure to diverse views, experiences, and places. We need both freedom of expression and freedom to explore, because both speak to the value of environments in which outcomes are uncertain. Nature is still available to us. Let us spend time in it, and in so doing generate strength and calibrate our understanding of our own significance. Humans are evolved to be anti-fragile. We grow stronger with exposure to manageable risks, with the pushing of boundaries fostering openness to serendipity and to that which we do not yet know. This is true for both bones and brains. Doing things with non-negotiable outcomes in the physical world, skateboarding, growing vegetables, ascending a peak, provides a corrective to many wrong-headed ideas currently passing for sophisticated. Some of these include all of reality is a social construct, emotional pain is equivalent to physical pain, and life is or can be made perfectly safe. A graduate school mentor of ours, George Estabrook, who was primarily a mathematical ecologist but who also spent many years of field seasons working and living with the practitioners of a traditional agricultural system in the hills of Portugal, wrote this in the introduction to one of his papers, quote, It is remarkable how the persistent empiricism of human beings struggling to make their living in nature results in practices that make ecological sense, even though they may be codified in ritual or explained in ways that seem superficial or not compelling ecologically. Indeed, local practitioners may have concepts, equally justifiable but very different from those of academics, of what constitutes a useful explanation. End quote. If we were forced to choose between the useful explanation given to us by a villager versus one provided by your average academic about an object that the villager depended on for her sustenance, we would surely choose the villager's explanation. Here we reference part of the introduction that we haven't yet shared with you guys, that Costa Rican villager who likely saved our lives by keeping us out of a rapidly rising river, whom we talked about in the introduction, knew far more about where we were and how to interpret the signs than we budding academics did. You can fool a person and they can fool you, but you can't fool a tree or a tractor, a circuit or a surfboard. So seek out physical reality, not just social experience. Pursue feedback from the vast universe that exists beyond other human beings. Watch your reactions when the feedback comes in. The more time you spend pitting your intellect against realities that cannot be coerced with manipulation or sweet talk, the less likely you are to blame others for your own errors. That's the excerpt for today.
0: Yes. It is interesting how events proceeding apace since we completed the book, uh, seem to reflect well on many of the things that we described as generalities in there. There's just so much of the uh, modern circumstance that um, is reflective of exactly these kinds of um, delusions and So once again, the the
1: first draft was uh, submitted in March of 2020, just as COVID was beginning to descend on the planet.
0: Right. So um, I I am... Uh, inspired to add one thing that is not contained in that uh, that excerpt yeah, this should be a living is, document um, the It is ancient that people should um, have the sense that their desire for something to be true, if they can only put enough will behind it, affects the uh the truth of what is correct, and that obviously isn't so. Um, what we are seeing now involves a sort of second Tier. Now, no doubt this has ancient origins as well. But there is not only the attempt to force reality to bend to one's desires, but we are seeing an industrial strength campaign now to shift the measurement of what has taken place so that it will reflect well on the belief that one can force something to be by willing it to be. Yeah. And this is very it's a very dangerous kind of transition because um, the problem is, in order to get better, we have to see the error of our ways. If the record of what took place is altered so that it reflects well on the myopia and blind spots of those who arrogantly pushed us in the direction of a policy, then uh, we aren't in ability in a position to um, correct our trajectory. And actually, right. I'm uh, many things are happening at once, obviously, in the world. What's taking place, in afghanistan i think reveals the full depth of the hubris of this system of governance right that um apparently we you're
1: not you're talking about the system of governance that we are engaged in or that they were engaged no in? no yeah. our system of <laughs> mm-hmm. governance
0: led us obviously into a uh, a situation we fought for almost a generation and the gains whatever they might have been are reversed within hours or days um that suggests that whatever stories we were telling ourselves were um not grounded in in reality um in this
1: well at, the, at, at least they weren't stable uh, or they they needed more work to become stable
0: well let's put it this way presumably i mean the women's
1: and girls lives were were improved over the last 20 years in afghanistan uh, and, and that is, that is disappearing.
0: Right. But we For were instance. not, we were not those of us in the society that, uh, that launched into this campaign were not told that what we were doing was temporarily staving off, um, right. uh, an evil that would descend again as soon as we left. Right. We were led to believe that we were accomplishing something and then we were led to believe that it was stable. And the opposite has turned out to be true. So I have no doubt that it was, um, better to exist in Afghanistan, uh, under our temporary rule. But the point is there was nothing accomplished. It was a matter of treading water, at least if this is the way, um, that we left. So in any case,
1: yes, certainly given, given the way that we, we left uh, it's a disaster.
0: And I think, um, you know, there's there's a general question here, which is to the extent that something takes control and decides to mislead us into um, pleasant fictions about what our power in the world might be, what we might accomplish, what it will cost, all of these things. At the point that we finally get our comeuppance. Uh, it is an extremely rude awakening, and the question is how much better off would we be if we had a system that made an attempt at least to be honest with us in real time about what the actual costs of something are, what might actually be accomplished? What are the real risks of doing this?
1: Well, just as just as compulsory schooling was in part, Explicitly intended in its origins in Germany, and to a large part, we, we inherited those intentions when compulsory schooling uh, took hold in sort of around the turn of the last century, uh, was to create a populace that was easily controlled. Uh, that, you know, as, as populations grew and as industrialization and mechanization grew, uh, it was valuable to employers to have a, a workforce uh, that didn't ask too many questions and um i have not heard it argued explicitly that it is valuable to a government uh that is uh that proclaims its democratic intentions in both its founding texts and in its current politicians uh that it is valuable to have a populace that is underinformed and yet that is clearly uh implicit in the policies uh, and the ways that policies are handed down and the, you know, the kinds of, the kinds of proclamations like hashtag follow the science, except we're not going to tell you anything but the conclusions that unnamed experts behind closed doors have arrived at. That's not, that's not following the science that's following the authorities and that's not scientific.
0: Right. And the implication is that the authorities, um, actually have a better vantage point and that their interests are synonymous enough with, with ours that what they tell us is at least a good shot at uh, what is liable to be the right direction. And the very frightening problem is that once you establish um, this relationship, that experts will decide something, you won't be able to check it or even understand who they are or what motivates them, but it's supposed to be in your interest, it will inevitably be captured and what is fed to you as the truth as seen by experts will be propaganda. And the problem is that you are endangered by the very fact that there is an engine of propaganda empowered to dress up like experts and tell you what it thinks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's where we are. And so yeah.
1: it's wearing the couture of science without being science. It is
0: the couture of science. It mm-hmm. is cargo cult science, uh, mm-hmm. as Feynman yes. would uh, would put it and did put it. And the problem is you know yes it's all well and good to describe it as cargo cult science but the real point is what is the danger of such a thing and the danger of such a thing is proportional to the seriousness of the matters that are being navigated by this pseudo scientific process and so you know i don't want to draw the connection too closely but i do think that to the extent that there is anything positive to be derived from the afghanistan situation at all it is the recognition that the system that was capable of making errors this big is in charge of many other things in which you are not in a position to see it unfold on your screen. And so the question is, all right, that thing was certainly so radically incompetent that it could not possibly be entrusted with anything important, right? It obviously, and I'm not regarding what took place in Afghanistan as anything but of the utmost importance, but the point is, that was important. That was clearly lives on the line um, and, you know, the fate of a people on the line. Yeah. And uh, we see how well it played out. We can see, you know, the hubris unfolding um, in in graphic terms. But the question is, what also looks like that that is not so visible or so easy to monitor? And, you know, uh, many... Many things are of great importance at the moment. We are navigating many uncharted uh, waters. And um, I don't see any evidence that there's a great deal more competence than what was in charge in Afghanistan in charge of, for example, COVID policy. Um, and so, you know, people need to think about that. It's at least mm-hmm. a question. What if, the, what if the thing that made this error is also making errors with respect to COVID that are equally as, as terrifying?
1: Right. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly the question. And I think that's a good segue actually to, um, to the next section. Um, but before we go there, I'm realizing Zach that I forgot to bring a book upstairs from which I want to read later. And I'm not going to tell you what it's called because I don't want to reveal that yet, but if you could grab for me or get Toby to grab for me, it's a small black book, uh, sitting on my desk downstairs. Thank you. Um, so, we were going to talk a little bit about um the fact that one thing that adults do is they correct their errors and they correct their errors to um to people you know in their own heads and they learn from them and they correct um publicly made errors in a in a public way uh and so uh i'm not sure exactly how to how to how to do this i um i don't think that that we made an error here but you wanted to make a correction uh, to uh, something that we have talked about. Yeah, I think yes. there's a
0: um, a Necessity to the extent that what we do and what I think we do well is We build a model and we show our work so that you can decide whether or not that model uh, Is likely to be accurate you can check how accurate it is over time and you can decide for yourself How you know is it a model for your model? Is it? Uh, too far-fetched and you need to build something out of different stuff, but in any case what's important is that we update with information Um, figuring out what constitutes information is not always simple but when something is a change in the information that we have available it is important that we um, show you that too and so something that we have uh, referred to in a number of different places uh, is now in question and we want to show you what it is and we want uh, to suggest what has happened to our model as a result so um, this is uh, a discussion of a paper that people who have followed us for a long time will have heard us talk about in one of a number of places, including our uh, Substack piece from the very end of July. Mm-hmm. Um, the piece is a study of Argentinian uh, healthcare workers. The first author is Carvalho. Zach, do you want to put it up for a second? I sent you uh, a link to the PDF. Okay. So there you can see the paper in question. Now, this paper reports an extraordinary result. It actually reports two studies. One is a preliminary pilot study and the other is a full-fledged study of 1,200 healthcare workers who were divided into 800 in the treatment group and something like 400 in the placebo uh, group or the group non-treated group. And Here is what has happened. Um, I became aware on the Ivermectin subreddit that a researcher, a doctor, had requested the data set for this study, and he said that he had not been given the data set, which is in and of itself a red flag because it is standard scientific practice. If you publish a paper um, based on a data set and somebody says, I'd like to see that data set, You send it to them and the reason for that are a couple things one it is important for people to be able to check whether or not you did the analysis correctly in other words maybe you took the data correctly but the analysis was wrong and if somebody else looks at the raw data they should be able to reproduce your result or discover that it wasn't right and the other thing is it may be valuable to um, analyze the data in a different way and see if there's something else there but in any case the fact that the data was not supplied was alarming and I decided to find out. So I also contacted Dr. Carvalho and I asked him for the data and he was initially resistant to giving it to me. Um, Ultimately, uh, a colleague contacted him, requested the data and he agreed to send it. And he has sent us a large number of materials from the study, but we do not have a data set and that uh, is concerning. Um, So, what is one to make of this? First of all, it has been about a month that we have...
1: This, this began to happen just shortly after we posted our Substack articles. Yes, right? I think my, yeah. I
0: made my first request for the data set on August 1st, which was only a couple days after. Okay. Uh, it, I made it immediately upon uh, hearing that the data set had not been provided to this other uh, researcher. Um, in any case, the, uh, the data set has not arrived, Uh, I have a friend, a data scientist, who had put together a small team that was ready to analyze the data um, when it was provided in order to figure out whether it was seriously flawed or possibly fraudulent. We don't know. Um, And in any case, because the data set was never provided, they were never able to do that analysis. And basically, we've just been in a holding pattern for the month. So in light of that, what do we make of this? Well, one, I still hold out hope that the data set might arrive... I would give it to the team of data analysts and we would find out you know, how well the study holds up. Um, but in the absence of that data set, I think we have to uh, rate the evidentiary value of this study at zero. Because we can't even know for sure that the study took place. So I hope the data set emerges. I hope it happens quickly. But until and unless it does, I would say that everybody should treat this study with the utmost caution and not invoke it. Um, I don't think it was incumbent on us to know that the data set wouldn't be provided. I mean, that's not how how scientific work uh, progresses. You assume studies have taken place. And if you have particular questions, you you request the data set and check. Um, But... This is uh I think this is where we are left. Now I do have one thing. So that is not a correction of what we mm-hmm. have said, it is an update on what the sum total of the evidence is. It does not affect so this was a study of prophylaxis. It does not affect the meta-analyses that have been discussed on Dark Horse and elsewhere. It was not a randomized controlled trial, so it was not included, for example, in the um the Lowry meta-analysis. Uh, It also doesn't affect any analysis of the effectiveness of ivermectin as a treatment because it was a study of prophylaxis and not treatment. Um, So it does, uh, it has some impact because it reported 100% success at preventing COVID in those who were treated. It does have some impact on the question of, you know, is there a prophylactic protocol that would be... uh, so highly protective? And we have to assume the answer is no until we see evidence otherwise. The place where I would correct myself, where I do think I made an error, is that initially when I spoke of this study, I described it as suggesting there was a ivermectin protocol that was 100% effective. That was never implied by the study because the study was a combination of ivermectin and carrageenan. And so it is impossible to disentangle uh, what part of the effect is carrageenan and which part of the effect would have been ivermectin. Um, and so in any case, I uh, I should have made that clear that it was a combined protocol from the beginning. And now at this point, I would say no weight should be given to the study at all.
1: Yeah. No weight should be given to that study um, in less and until uh, data are forthcoming. Um, let me just uh, close that off uh, by sharing. This is a article that I'm not sure we've talked about on air before, um, but it is it is referenced in that Substack post uh, that we made at the end of July. Um, and I just um, I just want to share a couple of sentences from the abstract. So this is a systemat- systematic review of what was understood, this is from uh, mid-2020, to be uh, the potential efficacy of ivermectin. And so Zach, if you would share my screen, this is in the Journal of Antibiotics by Haidery and Garabagi, ivermectin, a systematic review from antiviral effects to COVID-19 complementary regimen. Uh, and just, uh, you know, it has, so it has antimicrobial, antiviral, and anti-cancer properties. It is highly effective against many microorganisms, including some viruses. In this comprehensive systematic review, antiviral effects of ivermectin are summarized, including in vitro and in vivo studies over the past 50 years. Here's the one sentence I wanted to to read on air. Several studies reported antiviral effects of ivermectin on RNA viruses such as Zika, dengue, yellow fever, West Nile, Hendra, Newcastle, Venezuelan equine encephalitis, chikungunya, Semlicky Forest, Syndibus, avian influenza A, porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, human immunodeficiency virus type 1, and severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. Uh, so just just to remind us that there is an abundant literature long before uh, COVID and continuing now um, about this particular drug uh, and its efficacy against a wide range of human and other pathogens.
0: Yes, including many, many viruses, which...
1: Many viruses, um, especially RNA viruses.
0: Right, which, you know, again, just as a, a, a uh, lifelong bio geek does make me wonder what's going on in Japanese soil. I mean, it's possible it's that there's a very yeah. interesting story with viruses, maybe bacteriophages in that soil. I would love to know w- what explains this. And maybe it's not an ecological story, but my my guess is there's something there's something interesting to be told there, and we just don't know what it is yeah.
1: yet. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. Sure. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a conversation I had today. So I went this morning out to a local farmer's market, Uh, and it was less pleasant than it's been in weeks past, uh, because as some viewers will know, our, uh, the governor of Oregon, uh, reinstated or may, it may even be the first time that there's been a mandatory mask and, uh, mandatory mask, a mask mandate for outdoors under most circumstances as of yesterday, Friday, August 27th. And, um, as we have talked about since the beginning of these podcasts back in March 2020, uh, until very recently, there's been no evidence that uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmits outdoors. Um, there are now some glimmers that Delta variant may actually be able to, but there has been uh, no evidence of that uh, up, in, up until recently, and um, having to wear masks at a farmer's market where you're you know, spaced apart and where the space that you're in is effectively infinite is um, an overreach. Yes.
0: Um, I want to point out yeah. that to the extent that the outdoor transmission mode may be increasing, this is absolutely, absolutely something that we feared and predicted early on. And in yeah. fact, our position early on was there is no evidence this is transmitting outdoors and it has been checked. It's not that there's just an absence of evidence. It does not appear to transmit outdoors. Um, But because that renders outdoors safe, we should protect that environment because it's one of our greatest assets. And so what we recommended was that actually people upon coming in close contact outdoors do things like mask up and the reason being that we did not want there we did not want the virus to find a selective environment in which it could learn this trick, right, so the idea was one probably should exert more caution than is warranted by the epidemiology at present in order to prevent evolution of uh, this change in the virus so i don 't know whether or not uh, it will turn out that there is now outdoor transmission, but if it is. Um, frankly we warned you and it's another case in which uh, we will have seen something well ahead
1: well if the virus remains respiratory it will still be much more difficult uh for it to transmit outside and uh the the increasing levels of behavioral coercion that are coming down from on high and in some parts of the world have been frankly draconian for a very long time already uh is is not serving any of us uh and um Anyway, I had I had been at the farmers market I, you know, I, I, I did what I've been doing, for instance, when I go to the market f- from the beginning of this, I put it on right before I enter where I'm mandated to wear it. And I take it off as soon as I leave. And of course, in a farmer's market, that border is, um, completely artificial. Um, you know, it's like this, you know, this line demarcates where you're now in farmer's market territory versus the outside where people are just as much milling around and, and interacting. And, you know, no one is going up to strangers and, and breathing on them. Um, but much, that's not something that you do under normal circumstances either.
0: Much as the distinction between the people walking in a restaurant and sitting at a restaurant is arbitrary
1: exactly whereas um you know if if masks are effective um the demarcation between being inside a store and outside a store is a real demarcation that's actually a line that 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 makes some sense so i had um i had bought the the peaches and peppers and, um, dilly salad mix and berries and, uh, and various other deliciousness that I, um, I was intending to buy and returned them to the car and then got a coffee at a local coffee shop and was, and made a point of sitting on a bench, um, on a, on a bench that was empty outside of this coffee shop at one end of it such that there was another end. And in this era, um, of course, uh, it, you don't tend to get approached by strangers um, who ask if they can sit near you because um, because people are scared uh, and it's uh, you just never know who, who or what the person that you might be sitting next to um, is or believes or might be carrying as a pathogen, right? Um, so this this woman. Um, a totally different um, person from the women I interacted with in a, in a different spot several weeks ago, um, whom I talked about on air, um, but of, of similar age, probably you know a few years older than than us, um, Brett and. Uh, with grown children, but young, young adult children. I don't know this all at first, of course. She approaches me, she's carrying a couple of bags, she's got a nice poodle with her, um, and um, she asks if she can put the bags down on the bench first. And I said, of course. And then um, after a little while, she asks if she if she can sit down. She says she's agreed to meet someone from Craigslist um, that she's selling the contents of the, the bags to here. And, um, and we start talking. And... Um, and, well, actually, before she, she asked if she can sit down, I said, of course, uh, but I'm not, I'm not wearing a mask. Um, you know, that that's going to have to be okay with you. Uh, she, said, she says, of course, it's outside. So I thought, good. Um, she's, I think what she said was, of course, we're outside after all. Um and we then start talking about how much more difficult this is going to get as the weather turns, and in the Pacific Northwest, the summers are perfect when when the smoke doesn't make it impossible to breathe uh, and from the fires, um, but the middle fall through early spring are pretty dreary and cool, and they never get they usually don 't get bitterly cold but uh, very wet and um, you're not going to be sitting outside. Uh, you know, a coffee shop on a day in, on most days in November. It would be too wet and cold for it. Um, Although there are usually moments in every day when you could do that. Um, And we started talking about how we're, we're all going to need to be good to one another and to not look at one another with distrust or anger, to not dehumanize one another. And she says that it will require creativity on all of our parts and, and patience and she says at some point in here that uh, that she's a, a Christian and that she goes to she's a she's a Christian enough and a lot of people claim the mantle of Christianity, um, but that she's a Christian enough that she actually goes to um, Bible study every week and um, and that her children now grown actually did um, did missions when they were in high school, and um, I you know I. Tell her that I'm I'm not a Christian. That my you know my lineage is is Christian, but um, that I am not. But that uh, the the teachings in the New Testament are ones that we might all do well to to abide by. And some of the I just wanted to share some of some of the things that that she shared. Um, one of the people in her family. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this a little bit vague. Um, I did ask her if I could talk about about our conversation on air and, um, she didn't, she didn't know of us. Um, and she said, yes. Um, one of, one of her relatives has an office in downtown Portland. Um, there was a shooting outside of it last week. Sometimes he can't see outside of his windows because of the literal dumpster fires. So this is still happening. Um, there is now, you know, cosplay on both sides, uh, in which, uh, you have sort of staged extremists, um, bringing themselves together to have fights that look um look look staged
0: so the uh the gunfire outside the office was the the uh confrontation between the proud boys and antifa
1: it was it was and um you know of course these these occasional altercations um, that have happened between the Proud Boys and Antifa are the moments that the Proud Boys show up, whereas Antifa has been present much more consistently. Um, I would say that there are people um, effectively LARPing on both sides, but that the Antifa is, are, are the people with the persistent presence uh, in, in Portland. Oh, if um,
0: I can add one thing. Yeah. Um, these look... Uh, For one thing, they are reported in a very distorted way. Um, But if you look at what actually takes place, these are effectively rumbles that somebody has announced that they're going to have a demonstration and someone else decides that they're going to protect the city from it. And uh, what you have is these pre-announced rumbles. And the amazing thing is that despite the fact that these rumbles are violent up through uh, uh, a gun battle in this case... Mm -hmm. um, the police effectively are staying out of it and leaving Portland uh, yeah. ungoverned in some ways. And it is an absolutely shocking abdication of responsibility on the part of our municipal authorities. But in any case, yeah,
1: no, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. And um, you know, we talked about the lack she she and I, this woman and I talked about the the lack of leadership. um and and you know why? Why aren't the police stepping in at this point? Well, in part because uh, the police were roundly pilloried for so many months last year and continued to be by by many people uh, who write things like "all cops are bastards" and who and things like "kill a pig" on on graffiti in downtown Portland and elsewhere. And you know, many many good cops are leaving, are retiring, uh, and um, this woman has many police in her. Uh, among her friends and family as well. And, and told of some stories of these, you know, these, just these good, compassionate, honest, honorable law enforcement officers, both men and women who are being attacked for trying to do their jobs. Uh, of course, at some point, at the point that you have basically rumbles that are announced in advance between two opposing sects, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not the crips and the bloods but it might as well be um th- the police are going to say you know what we're we're out and where does that leave the the business owners and the people with offices who are exactly in the places where the rumbles are taking place well oh. it's left you know it's left our downtown uh, a complete mess. It's a, it's a complete mess. Well,
0: and it's going to become a disaster as people discover that the police are not showing up. I don't know. I don't think we know to what extent the decision not to show up is the police and to what extent, and, you know, certainly, uh, our mayor seems to proclaim himself clever for, uh, a strategy that involves staying out of these things, which of course is putting all the rest of the citizens of Portland in jeopardy, um, but I, I don't think we know why these decisions are being made but what right. we can say is that predictably enough if you keep the police out of things people will discover all of the things that they shouldn't be doing and weren't doing because police were enforcing the law and so we're headed somewhere very very dark
1: this last week there were literally people driving down the the 405 the wrong way the, one of the one of the major highways through through portland yeah
0: it was uh Filmed, apparently there's a group of people that routinely commandeers streets and bridges in Portland and uh uses them for their own sporting purposes. you know it's obviously a completely unsustainable approach, and to the extent that Portland is still mostly hospitable it's oh it's a legacy kind of stability from when the law was enforced, and you know at some level somebody's got to wake up
1: yeah no this is <sighs> The leaders have long since lost the plot. it would appear, um, but uh, the populace is not as quiescent and unaware as 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 we would be told right that those of us who are seeing things and saying things are actually uh, much more abundant than I think it it would appear, and this is why this is why I wanted to and I have a few more things to to say about this conversation that I had with this this lovely woman, um, who, you know, who also, you know, she's in Portland. She, you know, she, she says, I'm, I'm a liberal. I've got, you know, my, she, she reports to me that she's her best friend from high school lives in another town in Oregon that is, um, very red and that her friend and her disagree greatly over politics, but that, she loves her dearly, and she always will, and that they, they can still talk with compassion and love in their hearts about their children and about their futures and about how to make meaning in the world and how to do good in the world. And the fact that they vote differently uh, doesn't change that. Uh, and so I would just, I would return at some level to uh, the reminder that, you know, you have been saying for, for years now that left, right, liberal, conservative, the vast majority of us share values And to some degree, the biggest thing that we disagree on actually is what we think should be done, like how to how to achieve those values. And of course, right now, things are so fraught. But, you know, frankly, they have been for years now. And so who is served by keeping us at fever pitch? Who is served by keeping us at each other's throats? Not us. Definitely not the people who are at each other's throats. So this this woman who I spoke with again on this you know beautiful day, a block from a farmer's market in front of a coffee shop with lots of people walking by, her poodle attracting attention because he's a handsome dog. She says her son, who lives in northeast Portland, had his car broken into, which has never happened before. And he got it fixed. And then he parked it in the parking garage in downtown Portland. And it was broken into again. And, you know, this, you know, these sorts of things didn't used to happen with regularity in Portland. And they are happening increasingly. And of course, this is anecdote. But this is all from this is all from one conversation. Um, So, you know, why is this kind of anarchic behavior on the rise, aside from the fact that uh, we have vilified the police, exactly the people um, who uh, society has enjoined to help keep us safe, we have basically said, we have no use for you, and, you know, and we've, as a society, have made them, tried to make them irrelevant, and of course, in so doing, have made them more relevant than ever, But people are scared and underemployed and without agency, having had it taken away from them. You know, you must do this when you do that. You must, you know, you must. There's so many things we're being told told we must do, and other things we're being told we're not allowed to do. And the more of those people acquiesce to, the more they will continue to acquiesce to in the future. Um, I would, I guess, add just a couple more things that she said. Um, She said to me. that she used to say to her children before they were grown out of the house, is again, she's a, she's a liberal Christian woman um, who really who, who does Bible study on the regular, so really actually Christian. If there's anything more complex than a human being, it's a relationship between human beings. <laughs> Which reminded me very much, and in fact, I told her at that point, I said, you know, my, my husband and I have this book coming out and it's not a Christian book, it's an evolutionary biology book, but that reminds me so much of what of, of what our approach is um and we talked she and i about the value of getting out of your own bubble um and you know as i've said on this on this podcast many times before so many people who would claim that america is terrible haven't been anywhere else or if they've if they have traveled they've gone in they've gone within their with their bubble around them to some disney fied version or a place where they can continue to carry their um their cultural privilege, frankly, uh, and, um, being able to actually travel and actually experience how people live, um, that aren't living the same way you are gives a perspective that can't be attained any other way. And I offered knowing at this point that this was a a woman, um, a Christian, but I didn't yet know that her children had been on missionary trips. I invoked missionary trips. I said, you know, for me, it was international travel, um, as a, as a field scientist, um, in, in part that really allowed me to, to, to see this, to know this reality that, um, that I live a life that is more privileged and differently, you know, different than so many other people that you can't just read about. I said, I I suspect that that's actually one of the, um, one of the values and virtues of missionary trips as well and uh you know i i used to occasionally run into missionary groups when i was flying to madagascar or to panama and i didn't i didn't like that they were there right i I felt it felt coercive and uh intrusive and um you know not not okay um but i also never interacted with any of those people and found them hostile or mean or disingenuous Um, so one thing that I've come to understand about what I think the point of missionary trips is, and what I said to her, I sort of posited to her as a kind of hypothesis, although I don't think I said it that way, was, um, that they're actually as much about inner growth as about spreading the word of of Jesus, that they're about exposing the young people to other ways of being so that they can appreciate what they have and so they can know how many different ways there are to be human in the world and how at base the the things that unify us, that unite us, are far greater than the things that divide us, that we are much more similar than we are different. And um, she said, absolutely. And her children actually did do missionary trips. And in fact, one of the places they did missionary trips to was the Tenderloin, district in san francisco i didn't know that was a thing uh the tenderloin is um not a pleasant place to be at this point i don't think for anyone even if you live there um the last time we were there we sort of stumbled into it a couple years ago when we were wandering around san francisco and it was it was terrible completely awful
0: yeah we were i mean it's an experience you you almost never have in any major american city we were uh shouted at i can't remember what the content was but simply walking along the street we were actually just simply shouted at which Mm -hmm. you know uh, i can't remember the last time that happened yeah
1: i thought i thought spit at as well although i'm not sure um and you know they were by you know obvious you know people who are not doing well you know heroin addicts and and prostitutes and um you know people who are who are on the streets and not able to get off the streets um, and so her children did these missionary trips to the Tenderloin, and um, and then also um, one of them, one or more of them, went to um, a, a private liberal arts college, and that that also felt very far afield from their experience. Uh, and that when, at their, at their college, they had been surrounded by what she called sort of the country club kids, which is not who their kids were. And of course in the tenderloin, um, they were surrounded by people who were, you know, beyond down on their luck, which is also not her children's experience. And what she said to me was, I want my children to be equally capable of finding the humanity in people in the country club and in the tenderloin. And I mean, that, that's it really like we, we, that's what we need to be doing is to find be finding our common humanity and to be discussing with um with a constant undercurrent of of recognition that you're talking to another human being and that you may disagree with them about all manner of things, but that they are just as worthy of of respect and care as as you are. Uh, and that, that that seems to me to be increasingly missing from our discourse um and we can either talk about that now or um the the last thing that i explicitly or two more things but the next thing that i want to do is uh read a little excerpt from the book that i happened to be reading when she walked up to me
0: well uh, one thing i would say is you know i think the assumption needs to be that interacting with another person no matter who they are that they are uh equally deserving of Of respect as you are or as anyone else is. The problem is that we are running up against so much in which people have effectively sold out their obligation to uh, us as fellow humans, and uh, that is not deserving of respect. And so we are weirdly divided. I think your point from earlier, a few minutes ago, was exactly accurate. Even though we agree overwhelmingly on what world we want to live in for the most part, um, we have been falsely polarized into camps that cannot see the humanity in the other, and that is not for our benefit that is um, yes um, it let 's put it this way: We those of us who agree on what sort of society we want to live in, but maybe disagree about how close we are to it, or what might lead us in the right direction, we would be an absolutely unstoppable majority in a democracy, so we must not be united we must be we must be forced not to be able to see each other in order not to be so powerful.
1: Just to be, I mean, I think, I think you were clear, but if, if you tuned out and tuned back in, it might it might have sounded like you were saying, it's not possible that we're united. And what you, what you are saying is that um, those who would control us cannot allow for us to know that we are united. Right.
0: right? So uh, yeah. we haven't talked about it in some time, but the Hidden Tribes Report, for example, describes what it calls the exhausted middle, which is this very large majority that are basically in agreement that aren't extreme on... Questions of religion, they're not extreme on questions of abortion, on questions of uh, gun rights and gun control. they overwhelmingly agree on the basics uh, and so the point is well, why is there no party that speaks to that middle ground? And the answer is because there can't be. If there was, then the things that are that do have their interests represented in our captured governance structure would lose their power. so in some sense we need to um or maybe maybe the best thing is you know i used to say that the uh the npr listener regards the fox news viewer as insane and the fox news viewer regards the new york times reader npr listener uh as if they've lost their mind and they're both right mm-hmm. you know the point is each side has something that it sees with clarity and then its blind spot contains all sorts of nonsense. And the problem is um, you have to get over the sense that that person you know, who tunes into that channel that you can't stand um, is simply, you know if you think that their worldview has n- no value in it, that they haven't seen anything right, that actually you could take their worldview and take the inverse of it and that would be correct. If that's the quality of your thinking, then you can't get out of this. If you yeah. realize that actually um you know the right for example is correct about the hazard of unintended consequences of new policies and the right is incorrect for example about the hazard that um industrial civilization poses to the planet right if you can That is
1: that they under undervalue the hazard.
0: Right they yeah. tend to, they tend to think things are better than they are ecologically that things is a
1: cornucopianism.
0: Right mm-hmm. um then you know if you can see both of those things then there's somewhere to go if you're if you can only see uh, half the equation then the point is okay yes then you will forever be uh unable to recognize what the vast amount that we agree on before we ever get to the part that we really disagree on
1: yeah and you know i mean the final chapter of our book really talks about the society wide stuff and the political divisions so we'll be talking a lot more about this in a couple of weeks as well but um you know it right versus left conservative versus liberal you know th- there are various definitions out there of course and um one of the things that we that we heard a lot after evergreen uh, was well, see, you're not that you're not really liberal because look at all the people on the right who who you agree with. Uh, to which our point was actually that's a postmodern perspective, and we're not on the left because of our social group. We're on the left because of um, our overwhelming uh, belief in in what policies will help us get to the world that uh, we all want to live in, and we do believe that m- the vast majority of us want to live in the same kind of world, but we disagree about how to get there. And I guess um, I would say you know maybe a a better response even is if if left if broadly speaking and there will be of course, many people who will disagree with these categorizations. But if the left is about leaving the past behind and moving forward into a future that we haven't yet seen, and if the right is about uh, returning to a past uh, that is imagined to be rosy and, and perfect and um and and um not making the mistakes of of um, progress that goes too fast, and of course that's that's imperfect at best. Um, there's you know g- given that uh, you know business tends to be um, you know voting on the right, and business is about you know m- productivity and growth and such. It's imperfect. Um, well, if, if you do though, frame it as basically, are you interested in a, a past that you believe was excellent and could be returned to, or a future that you believe could be better? Um, how about both? Like don't we need both? Of course we need both. We need um, we need neither one in isolation. We need to retain those aspects of the past that have been functional and remain functional and about which we know little enough yet to mess with without risking um, collapsing whole systems. And we need to be able to move forward in a way that is um, careful, but also creative and innovative and unforeseen. And yes, we will make mistakes, but uh, we also have a chance of making the world even better for our descendants.
0: Well, you need to have the tension and you need not to depend on the pendulum mechanism. The pendulum mechanism is in some sense uh, an unacceptable an acceptably crude feedback mechanism, Mm -hmm. right? You know, in other words, if you think about the way complex systems, complex adaptive systems that actually maintain stasis work, you know, your temperature isn't wildly fluctuating You know, you don't get a fever, right? And then the system that, you know, uh, then sheds heat, you know, kicks into high gear and you become so cold you can't function, right? It's not like that. The Mm -hmm. point is it's it's a very narrow modulation that keeps you so close to the optimal temperature, or at least the important parts of you so close to the optimal temperature that you function very well. And the point is our system... Is sort of reactionary in both directions, mm. right? Our system lets the progressives run wild. They create all sorts of unintended consequences, which creates a you know a distaste for progressivism, which then results in a reactionary uh, overcompensation. That's not a good way of navigating. Yeah. Which, what you know, an enlightened, more adult way of navigating is to recognize that actually anybody who thinks their side of the right-left divide is correct is wrong right? It is the tension between them that allows you to navigate in some useful way. And so that's sort of like, you know, entry into the adult conversation is do you recognize that it's a tension between the instinct toward progressivism and the instinct to preserve that which functions that actually makes the system work and get better. Yeah, Um, And then from there, you can navigate. But, you know, as you were mentioning earlier this week, we've lost the instinct uh, we've We've lost even the belief in the loyal opposition. Yes. Both sides are so busy painting the other as um detestable and you know beneath contempt and unworthy of uh of dignity or whatever it is that um you know we are watching some kind of a psychosis right we're yeah. watching people who have lost basic track of what it is that actually made the system work in the fir- first place. And somehow we're going to have to regain control of it.
1: That's right. So the book that I was reading uh, when when this woman approached me and we had this conversation uh, was Elie Wiesel's Night. Uh, and it is, uh, for those unfamiliar with it, uh, his his autobiographical tale of having gone from being a, I, th- I think he's 15, Um, year old living, um, Jewish boy living with his family in Czechoslovakia um, and then being dragged into Auschwitz and losing most of his family. Um, But before, um, while their world still looked somewhat intact, um, just a little excerpt from this. Spring 1944. Splendid news from the Russian front. There could no longer be any doubt. Germany would be defeated. It was only a matter of time, months or weeks, perhaps. The trees were in bloom. It was a year like so many others, with its spring, its engagements, its weddings, and its births. The people were saying, the Red Army is advancing with giant strides. Hitler will not be able to harm us, even if he wants to. Yes, he even we even doubted his resolve to exterminate us. Annihilate an entire people? Wipe out a population dispersed throughout so many nations, so many millions of people? By what means? In the middle of the twentieth century? And thus my elders concerned themselves with all manner of things strategy, diplomacy, politics, and Zionism, but not with their own fate. Even Moisha the Beatle had fallen silent. He was weary of talking. He would drift through synagogue or through the streets, hunched over, eyes cast down, avoiding people's gaze. He was someone who had seen some of the truth of what the Nazis were up to and could not convince. His fellow villagers. In those days, it was still possible to, to buy emigration certificates to Palestine. I had asked my father to sell everything, to liquidate everything, and to leave. I am too old, my son, he answered, too old to start a new life, too old to start from scratch in some distant land. Budapest radio announced that the fascist party had seized power. The regent Miklos Horthy was forced to ask a leader of the pro Nazi nihilist party to form a new government. Yet we were still not worried. Of course we had heard of the fascists, but it was all in the abstract. It meant nothing more to us than a change of ministry. The next day brought really disquieting news. German troops had penetrated Hungarian territory with the government's approval. Finally, people began to worry in earnest. One of my friends, Moshe Haim Berkowitz, returned from the capital for Passover and told us, the Jews of Budapest live in an atmosphere of fear and terror. Anti-Semitic acts take place every day in the streets on the trains. The fascists attacked Jewish stores, synagogues. The situation is becoming very serious. The news spread through Sikhet like wildfire. Soon that was all people talked about, but not for long. Optimism soon revived. The Germans will not come this far. They will stay in Budapest. For strategic reasons, for political reasons. In less than three days, German army vehicles made their appearance on our streets. One more, one more paragraph. Anguish. German soldiers with their steel helmets and their death's head emblem. Still, our first impressions of the Germans were rather reassuring. The officers were billeted in private homes, even in Jewish homes. Their attitude towards their hosts was distant but polite. They never demanded the impossible, made no offensive remarks, and sometimes even smiled at the lady of the house. A German officer lodged in the Kahn's house across the street from us. We were told he was a charming man, calm, likable, and polite. Three days after he moved in, he bought Mrs. Kahn a box of chocolates. The optimists were jubilant. Well, what did we tell you? You wouldn't believe us. There they are, you're Germans. What do you say now? Where is their famous cruelty? The Germans were already in our town. The fascists were already in power. The verdict was already out. And the Jews of Sighat were still smiling. We never see it when it happens.
0: Yeah, I have to say it makes me very angry to hear actually um,
1: tell what what is that
0: well um,
1: I had not shared that with you yeah before.
0: I think there's something about it because you know there are these photographs that emerged some years ago lost photographs of um, Nazis men and women uh, outside of I think Auschwitz um, enjoying blueberries or something Right. Mm -hmm. There's something about the recognition of how much they understood and yet were willing to behave as they did that is, it's more chilling. It places the crime in an even more chilling context. Mm -hmm. And hearing about, you know, what is obviously the immediately before times um is very frightening now of course there's... the people
1: themselves the targets the people who will largely be annihilated the man writing this book elie wiesel obviously survived but most of his family did not could not convince themselves that what they were seeing the intimations they were getting what they were hearing was real
0: i think i think the problem and you know we, we keep encountering this in different places uh, eric years ago pointed me to this uh this Gostler piece, um, the Screamer, mm-hmm. um, which makes this point about the difficulty of seeing these things as they actually occurred rather than as history writes them. I mean, the That's idea right. that you know World War II was fought without uh, the full awareness of the population about what they were in fact fighting about. They knew who they were fighting, mm-hmm. but um,
1: you know. Uh, certainly, the, um, certainly the American uh, men who were fighting in the European theater had no idea.
0: Well, th- there's a question about who had no idea. And the, the point of the Screamers is that many people had every reason to know and yeah. somehow managed to convince themselves that it wasn't happening. Right. Um, but there is also the fact that we tend to synonymize the Holocaust and World War II. And in fact, the Holocaust was revealed by the success in, in the war you know what had taken place is revealed later and of course for all of those of us too young to have been alive at that point it sort of all gets written as the history of the moment rather than the history of the revelation
1: right i mean mean, that's 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 critical actually there's like a we need a history that takes into account theory of mind like the people who you're reading about who lived concurrently with things but they didn't know or they could have known but they didn't know they were they had a cognitive dissonance um, or they really didn't know, and yet they were still willing to fight. Like all of these things were realities for people, and you know, having having it be in history means that it's very hard for most of us to do the additional level of theory of mind of like, okay, sorry, you know, God doesn't play dice, but maybe you do. Is that what's going on? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's very hard for us to know um, to to recognize what what people's lives are actually like, which is part of why these first-person accounts um, from, from someone as extraordinary as Elie Wiesel are, are so critical to, to, to be reflecting. And of course, he's reflecting after he has survived and most of his family hasn't. So, you know, he's writing um, in, in retrospect, um, but to be remembering that there were indication, indications and that it was still so desirable to just to enjoy spring. Right to, to to enjoy the peaches and the engagements and you know right. peaches are summer but you know to 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 be human with one another even as there may be people who are actively working to take that humanity away.
0: Well, there's definitely an aspect of it's later than you think, mm-hmm. and that's the problem is that to have an accurate reaction before the Germans descend in that piece. in in that segment that you read before they descended was the right time to react to prepare to flee or to figure out how to fight and what the excerpt you read reports is essentially a rationalization process about why it won't be all that bad and then it you know there's a reassuring oh, here's all the evidence that it isn't that bad. And the point is, of course, it was exactly that bad and far worse. Um, But the question really, the obvious question is how to extrapolate from this, right? It could always be later than you think. And then the point is you should always be in a state of preparing for it being exactly that bad and far worse, which, of course, wouldn't make any sense because it isn't always that bad. But the question is, where are you in history? And... One of the things I've been wrestling with in in the present is, of course, we have been divided into two camps about everything, right? And the camps aren't, you know, it's sometimes you fall in different uh, on different sides based on different divisions. But nonetheless, there is a a kind of um, COVID isn't that serious. This is an excuse for authoritarianism, right? That's like a camp. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's a COVID is very serious and this is about public health, you dummies. Right. And the point is, neither of these things are right.
1: Well, those, those are two camps that have those are categories. Those are sets that are not empty. People belong. People, Many people, people. believe most those people, things. Most, most people fall but, into but one it's, of those. But those two things do not a, a solution, a complete solution set make.
0: Right. Exactly. And, and that's what I'm getting at is yeah. COVID is extremely frightening. And the fact that it probably has an at least somewhat non-natural origin makes it even more frightening because it means it's harder to predict what it's going to do, right? Right. Um, Well, and and,
1: and add to that that we still aren't fully allowed to talk about what that means about policy with regard to future research and gain-of-function research. Right, and how how did this come to be— How will such a thing be avoided in the future if we can't talk about origins?
0: Right, and— To the extent that there appears to be a very credible uh, argument that gain-of-function research taking place in Wuhan was the result of Americans circumventing their own legal ban on gain-of-function research and funneling uh, resources to Wuhan in order to get the work done. How is it possible that one of the people in charge of our pandemic response is also one of the people responsible for... You know, whether or not this is where the virus came from, one of the people responsible for um, circumventing that ban. There's no way Anthony Fauci should be in charge of our pandemic response, no matter what.
1: So but, just to that end, let me say um, I recommend listening to Josh Rogan on Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast. There's a two-part um, discussion of uh, of basically how China's role in... Um, in changing the narrative that we are all engaged in, and and they talk about this, and it's 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 a remarkable sort of conversation. So I'm not quite done with the second one, but
0: well, I'm I'm looking forward uh, yeah. to listening to it myself. Um, I will say we have to ask the question: To what extent are the narratives that we are battling over being fed to us by something that does not have our navigating the pandemic well, um, you know, at its core? Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean that we are being fed narratives from somewhere else, but it's at least a possibility and that would explain in part why we are managing it so badly if that were uh, shifting our our view and our approach. Narrative, but,
1: narrative control is uh, um, an incredibly powerful kind of control because it doesn't require the infrastructure it doesn't require physical movement of things in this in this day and age
0: right. Um, yeah. And yes, yeah, the, the opportunity for it obviously exists. Yeah. And so what are the chances that that opportunity is not being utilized, right? Or has been Someone, completely neutralized yeah. is pretty low chance. But in any case, what, what I would say is the two camps are clearly both wrong, right?
1: Uh, those two camps, uh, COVID is not a real thing and- COVID is not serious. Yes, it's it's not serious. Um, This is an
0: excuse for authoritarianism. And and the other camp being- being COVID is extremely serious and the authoritarianism isn't authoritarianism, it's public health.
1: Okay, so those two camps are both wrong.
0: They're both wrong, Mm -hmm. right? It is quite clear that COVID is a very dangerous disease. I mean, it's really, it's like physiologically diabolical, Mm -hmm. right? What it does to the body- long COVID, all of these things, it is not to be trifled with. Yeah. The ground glass
1: opacities in the lungs alone yeah.
0: Right. On the other hand, it does seem to be the um, excuse for an awful lot of authoritarianism that makes no sense, right? Mm -hmm. And in in one way, actually, I think uh, there's a litmus test, right, that we can use To detect that there is something about this that is just absolutely not public health and incoherent right Um, not only is it the case that there's nothing about the current policy even if everybody were to comply completely that actually brings SARS-CoV-2 under control right it can't do that even in principle Um, but there's also this issue I probably should have prepared with a, a diminishing returns graph but um, the, the fact is diminishing returns is a feature of any complex system in which there is an objective, right? There are complex systems that have no objective. Uh, uh, weather is a complex system in which there's no objective. And so you can't say that there are diminishing returns in, in the case of weather, because, um, because there's no, there's no, there's no such thing as a return. Yeah, so you want to show this?
1: Zach, you can show my screen. So this is actually a figure from the final chapter of our book.
0: Do um, uh, so you, is you a, want to
1: describe it for people just listening?
0: Sure. This is a simplified diminishing returns curve. And uh, basically, if you imagine, um, so uh, the x-axis is investment. The y-axis is return. There is a... Uh, a shallow early phase that then curves up and becomes a steep, effectively a cliff face and then in uh, which your
1: investment is low relative to the returns that you get for it,
0: right? So right. We the call the that, early,
1: the early stages. I'm trying to figure out what it is. Right. Like what am, I'm learning how to skateboard or whatever it is, right. and it's tough at first. And then you hit some point like, oh, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm getting this. And then what happens at the inflection point you, in the curve?
0: You, um, you get the emergence of a plateau where larger and larger investments and that smaller and smaller gains. Yeah. And, and it's
1: not. I mean, it's not. In some cases it will be, but um, we didn't mean for it to be drawn exactly as a plateau. Yeah, like there's no, there's it, a little bit of, it's of growth.
0: It's an asymptote. There's still, there still returns on investment, but yeah. they get less and less. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point is the reason that you get a diminishing returns curve in a complex system in which there's an objective is that you have a hierarchy of interventions, right? You've got some stuff that's actually no-brainers that work really well. And you do those things first, obviously, because why wouldn't you? And the point is, the more of those things you've already done, the more of the low-hanging fruit you've uh, you've found, the more you're forced to do things that, yes, work, but at some very large cost. And so anyway, you get this pattern reliably because a reasonable... A reasonable person or system attempting to solve a problem will go after the low-hanging fruit first, will find it, and will be left with smaller and smaller interventions that are more and more expensive, eventually getting to a point um, of near pointlessness. (laughs) Um, But in any case, the point is our response to COVID does not show an indication that we have gone after the low-hanging fruit at all. Mm. right? It's completely insane with respect to the low-hanging fruit that we have left on the table and not invoked. And this is left- For instance. Well, for instance, um, the most obvious one, and the thing that I would suggest that we use as a litmus test is the question-
1: Hold on a second. Hey, Z, could I get my screen back?
0: Thank you. Is the question of uh, vitamin D. There it is. Now, the vitamin D question is not simple. It's not a simple matter of take vitamin D, avoid covid right? You can take vitamin D and still get COVID. But it is a matter of the evidence strongly suggests that vitamin D deficiency makes you much more vulnerable to COVID. This is completely unambiguous. And that what's more, that people who live far from the equator, as many of us do, are very likely to be vitamin D deficient, during the winter months. Why? Because vitamin D is naturally produced on the skin in response to sunlight and so what that means is that vitamin D deficiency, which might not be inherent to humans, is very common amongst modern humans because of the way we live, because we spend a lot of time indoors, because many of us live uh, in cold climates where climate control allows us to continue, but we are then uh, chronically underexposed to sunlight that would produce vitamin D, and therefore vitamin D supplementation has tremendous value in terms of fending off COVID for people who are likely to experience deficiencies. What's more, vitamin D is inexpensive, Vitamin D is readily available, and vitamin D not only does it not have serious downsides, but if you take reasonable amounts of vitamin D, you are very likely to fend off other diseases because vitamin D deficiency makes you uh, is basically immunosuppressive.
1: Just uh, one one comment: there is the possibility of overdosing in vitamin yes. D because it's fat soluble.
0: Because it's fat soluble right. and not water soluble, it is possible to take too much. So be mindful. But the yep. point is. Many of us have vitamin D deficiencies in the winter. They have impacts on our health that are negative. Those deficiencies do. There's probably little or no advantage of having more than enough vitamin D, but getting to the point that you do not have a deficit of it makes a great deal of sense. And yet we are somehow still not widely recommending vitamin D to everybody who's likely to have that deficiency in the winter, in spite of the fact that we have a raging pandemic, um, and we could reduce the number of cases substantially by simply making that one intervention. Yeah. So.
1: No, and there's, uh, sorry to interrupt for just a second. I was just this, uh, one of my posts on natural selections, I was specifically talking about vitamin D. This is the hospital's post. Um, vitamin, uh, you don't have to show this, um, vitamin D, you can, whatever. Um, vitamin D has been identified, and this is just a short list as having effects beneficial to the individual with regard to immunity, autoimmunity, cardiovascular disease, cancer, fertility, pregnancy, and dementia among other things. And here I, um, link to a 2013 review article, um, vitamin D effects on musculoskeletal health, immunity, et cetera, et cetera, a review of recent evidence. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, one of these sort of you know, wonder wonder molecules at some level um, that, yes, you can overdo it, but it's very much more likely that you have effectively underdone it uh, yes. with regard to where you live.
0: You can overdo it. And yeah. above a level where you have adequate amounts of vitamin D, it probably does you very little good. But the point is many of the cases of COVID that people get are downstream of deficiencies where they wouldn't have gotten the case or would have been much better off if they had had vitamin D. So the question yeah. is, How on earth is this not our first recommendation to people that you, if you have any danger of a vitamin D deficiency, that you do something about it that includes um, making vitamin D while the sun shines by going outside and exposing yourself to sunlight and as that becomes less and less uh, useful as an intervention, supplementing with uh, biologically available vitamin D that would compensate for a deficiency. So I would say that's a litmus test. Why is it a litmus test? Because it's the lowest hanging fruit on so the tree. So remind
1: us again, that was just, I I, I, I followed that circle, but uh, we're now talking about low hanging fruit with regard to, you know, why is the pandemic response not encouraged people to do the obvious, inexpensive, clearly useful things such as go outside, be active, supplement, supplement with vitamin D if there's any reason to suspect that you are deficient in it. Those are right. some low hanging fruit recommendations, public health recommendations recommendations that enrich no one, but contribute greatly to public health.
0: Right. There is no good reason not to address the question of vitamin D deficiency first. It's the lowest hanging fruit. It should have been our first first intervention. And the fact that we didn't do it is evidence of one of two things. It is either evidence of absolutely jaw-dropping levels of incompetence, which is possible, or that something else is driving our policy that isn't really obsessed with preventing COVID, um, and we don't know which it is. But I mean, let's say it's the better of them. It's jaw-dropping incompetence. Well, but it's the
1: kind of incompetence that can be fixed at any moment. You know, all you know, any one of these organizations can start saying, on top of everything else, and maybe most of what we're telling you is garbage, but you really ought to consider <laughs> vitamin D. Your vitamin. Like D. This, well, this is just something that you can add at any moment. It's not like well that ship has sailed. We can't start recommending vitamin D now. Like, no, it's not like that.
0: So, I mean, but what happens at the CDC when somebody who didn't get the memo shows up at the meeting and is like, hey, I've got a great idea. Check out how effective vitamin D is for people who are deficient. This is a a spectacular intervention. It really prevents a lot of cases of COVID. Let's just recommend it because at least we can all agree on that, right? And then what, what happens? What kind of crickets? Like, how does that not... Vitamin D deficient crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yes. Uh, so in any case, uh, when the lowest hanging fruit on the tree has not been picked, something is up that at least amounts to jaw-dropping incompetence. Yeah. That's, that's the, the shallow end.
1: Okay. So um, at the end of most of the chapters in this book, <clears throat> we have something called the corrective lens in which we provide you know, actionable suggestions um, that follow from some of the analysis and stories that we provided in the rest of the chapter. This one, the corrective lens items on this chapter are long. I was considering reading all of them, but I think I won't read all of them. Um, but there are a couple that are particularly salient, I think, given the conversation we just had. The first one is explicitly aimed to be an adult, Do this in part by regularly asking yourself the questions that we pose at the beginning of the chapter. For instance, am I taking responsibility for my own actions? Am I being closed-minded? And by minimizing the effects of economic markets on your daily life. Become aware of the constant flow of information telling you what to think, how to feel, and how to act. Do not let it into your mind. Do not let it steer you. Your internal reward structure needs to be independent and ungameable. That independence, in turn, should allow you to collaborate well with others who are similarly independent. Be wary of those who may well be nice, but who are captured. Um, There's a lot. I think these are all good. We wrote them. Um, Four more. Smile at people. The people with whom you live, the person behind the counter, the stranger on the street. Put your phone down. No, really, put it down. Define your fights for whom and what you love, rather than against whom and what you hate. If a mob ever comes for people you know, people whom you consider friends, stand up and say, no, you're wrong. Be honorable and courageous when bullies move in. Speak up for what you know to be true, even if it makes you a social pariah. And finally, uh, apropos the discussion of diminishing returns curves, uh, which we don't have a picture of here, but we do in the final chapter of the book, learn to jump curves. Diminishing returns are a factor for every complex phenomenon, so learn to jump curves. Put another way, consider learning a new thing rather than being a perfectionist and trying to get ever better at whatever you are already really, really good at. We will speak to this more in the final chapter, and therefore we'll speak to that more here in a couple of weeks. Um, are we there? I think we are. For the week? All right. Um, And we thank you for joining us. And if you are here with us live right now, uh, stay tuned. We will be back uh, in as close to 15 minutes as the tech allows us with the Q&A. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Consider joining uh, one or both of our Patreons tomorrow at my Patreon at 11 a.m. Pacific on Sunday, August 29th is uh, this month's private Q&A for two hours. Uh, You can find shirts at store.darkhorsepodcast.org. You can email logistical, but not uh, questions for the Q&A, logistical questions to darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. And please consider subscribing to all four of our channels. We've got two here on YouTube, Brett Weinstein's main channel and the Dark Horse Podcast Clips channel and identically named channels on Odyssey. Anything you want to say before take us out?
0: Ah, I think I said it. Make vitamin D while the sun shines.
1: Make D while the sun shines and be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside.
0: Be well, everyone.